You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Try to see it my way. Do I have to keep on talking till I can go on? While you see it your way, run the risk of knowing that our love may soon be gone. We can work it out. We can work it out. Think of what you're saying. You can get it wrong and still you think that it's all right. Think of what I'm saying. We can work it out and get Hello and welcome to the very first episode of In Country. My name is Tom Panneries. I will be your host for the next 100 episodes as we take a look at a comic book that I don't think has gotten very much podcasting coverage, which is Marvel Comics' The Nom, that was published starting in 1986, ran for 84 issues until 1993, plus three unpublished issues that were eventually collected into a trade paperback entitled Punisher and the Nam Final Invasion, which was released in 1994. I'm going to be covering all 87 stories, talking about one story per episode, giving a synopsis as well as a critique of each issue. I'll also be looking at the letter columns and ads for each issue as well. I'll provide some historical context too. Most of the series issues take place on specific dates or during specific months during the Vietnam War, so I'll do a moderate amount of research and talk about what was going on in the war at the time, and maybe even give some, give some other highlights in terms of how important, of important news stories and moments in popular culture from the era. Now, I know that I said I'd be here for 100 episodes, uh, and even though there's only 87 stories to cover, it's because I saw 87 episodes and I thought that wasn't a very good number and knew that considering all the literature, music, and movies that surround the Vietnam War, I could get another 13 episodes out of it, no problem. So every once in a while, probably around the time we finish a year's worth of issues, I'll put together a special episode that covers something outside of the comic but involves the war. Uh, might even do a letters or emails episode every once in a while as well. Um, I am recording a lot of these in advance to peek behind the curtains, so doing emails within episodes might not be as practical because I'll probably be like 10 episodes behind my first email or something. So I'll probably just do an emails episode or an email segment on a special episode every once in a while. But yeah, so every once in a while, probably around the time we finished a year's worth of issues, I'll put together a special episode. It covers something outside of the comic involves the war. Movies such as Platoon, The Deer Hunter, for instance, Apocalypse Now, maybe books like Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried. Uh, I'd even get like to get a few guests or interviews in the show as well. Um, as they say, we'll see what happens. But I certainly hope you'll come along for the ride. Before I get into the first issue of The Nom... Uh, I thought I'd introduce myself, uh, talk about why I wanted to do a podcast about a 1980s war comic, as well as give you a little bit of a history behind the comic book itself. Basically, I have very little experience with the Vietnam War or Vietnam. Uh, I was born in 1977. My first exposure to the war was through, believe it or not, G.I. Joe. Uh, When I was about 10 years old, I began reading the Larry Hama penned G.I. Joe Real American Hero comic series. Uh, Being that I had a local comic store, Amazing Comics, in Saville, New York, which is still in business. It's at the corner, um, it's right behind the old Thornhills Drugstore on the corner of Gillette and Main Street. I began hunting down back issues. My friends and I, of course, all wanted issues 1 and 2. Two other issues that were very important to us were G.I. Joe number 26 and 27. They were a two-part story entitled Snake Eyes the Origin. 
Um, I wound up owning these, but I actually had second prints. Uh, a lot of the G.I. Joe issues, especially popular ones like this, did go into second printings. So believe it or not, G.I. Joe got the short shrift in the Marvel Comics The Untold Story book. Um, I don't... I mean, for all I know, it wasn't selling as big as some of the other titles were, but, you know, that was that was a big title for quite a number of people, especially through the mid-80s, um, as was the Transformers. But maybe I'm just talking out of nostalgia here. Anyway, G.I. Joe 2627. These were a two-part story entitled Snake Eyes The Origin. In it, we learned about how Snake Eyes became disfigured and eventually mute through various accidents during his time in the Army. We also learned that Stalker, one of the other Joes, served with him in Vietnam, as did a kid named Tommy, who's now known as Storm Shadow and is a ninja working for Cobra. Now, while this grounded the Special Missions Force in a real-world historical context, it mostly served to solidify Snake Eyes' ninja-based background, because um, after the war, he went and trained with the Hardmaster and Softmaster, and there was this whole, you know, the whole thing about the Urashikagi clan, and it was, though, was a huge factor making making both the characters of Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow that much cooler. Uh, I don't have those comics anymore. I might go track them down on eBay just to read them again. But I vividly remember the Vietnam War scenes, uh, especially in issue 26. Those were actually written and illustrated by Hama himself. I want to say like Herb Trimpey or somebody did the art for number 27. Mike Zeck did the covers for both. Uh, They were excellently done. Uh, The Vietnam scenes were excellently done. As the kid... Uh, and as a kid, they were probably some of the first visuals I actually ever saw of the war. Uh, by the time I was about 12 years old, though, I'd be ensconced in the action movies of the 80s, and I would have seen various depictions of Vietnam, the Vietnam War, uh, and Vietnam War vets in flicks such as um, Missing in Action, for instance. Um, and then later on, I would get to see Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, Apocalypse Now, and some other films. So up until I was in high school and college, I had the same exposure to NOM that just about everybody else in my generation did. Uh, then I took history class. Um, I had a great, great 11th grade history teacher who, who taught history through the Constitution. So instead of doing everything chronologically, we take a look at the aspect of a Constitution and look at different events in American history that applied somehow. So we didn't necessarily have to do the revolution again. We did. We looked at the wounded knee. We looked at um, uh, the labor movement of the of, of the late 1800s. We looked. Uh, did a really in depth look at events. Um, you know, during the during uh, various points in American history, and we did a very in depth look at Vietnam. Which, if you were a kid. Again, around my age, going to high school in the early 90s, you rarely got to learn about because it always came at the end of the year in history class. And the end of the year in history class was we had fallen behind and we were trying to catch up and it just was not as, you know, recent history just didn't got didn't get a lot of coverage, which is kind of a bummer because it was some of recent history was some of the more interesting stuff, at least to me. So it was kind of cool to learn the actual facts. It was kind of cool to see some actual coverage as opposed to what I'd seen in like Chuck Norris movies. And I got interested. I got interested in the area. And to be honest, I I enjoy the 20th century history. I enjoy 20th century history, especially post-World War II history. Um, everything from the actual major events to stuff that is more sociological and cultural. I think it comes from the fact that my parents are both baby boomers. 
um, and I grew up on Long Island. And Long Island's the original suburbs. And so I, I like reading about the rise of the suburbs. Uh, Levitt and Robert Moses and, and these people up in the New York area. Um, and then, of course, kind of the wider spread thing. This is a space program and, and events like the Vietnam War. It's just an era that, that I'm one generation removed from and I'm just fascinated by in some regard. And in doing so, I feel like I'm kind of reading about my own past in a way. Like I said, one generation removed, but my parents were kind of in the thick of it. In fact, I showed American Graffiti in my lit class because they're reading Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried, and I did the math, and my parents were the ages, or I think my mother was the ages of the characters in the book. I think my father might have been a couple of years older but when it takes place in the in the movie so cuz my mother would have graduated high school um in 64 i think my dad graduated in 63 62 so they were both around the age of the people in, in American graffiti so again this connection to the past and the connection to the past comes through the Vietnam War because my dad did serve in Vietnam um, as a member of the Air Force in the mid-60s. So I have kind of a personal interest in the topic. The comic, or the way I came about the comic, is a little bit different. Um, I didn't read it when I was a kid. Uh, I knew about it, uh, saw it on the shelves a few times, never really, never really picked up a copy. Read selections from Tim O'Brien's novel The Things They Carried When I Was in College. Um, about five or six years ago, when I was teaching 11th grade English, I teach 10th now, I assigned the book for the class. It was one of the few war novels that I really like. My students really seem to get into it, and that's partially because it's full of its fair share of action and cursing, of course, but it also because it runs very, very deep. Um, I remember that one day I happened to be at my local comic shop, which is Atlas Comics out in Charlottesville, Virginia, in the Rio Hill Shopping Center. Go stop by. In fact, I'm recording this on a Wednesday, so in a few hours I'll be getting my books. I was kind of bumming around in the back issue bins. I was like, I want to pick up something I haven't read before because back issues were pretty cheaply available. And I thought, hey, you know, I've never read the NOM. So I found where the series was in the back issue bins, was able to pick up the first year's worth of issues and they gave me the original cover price for it, so I got it for 75 cents a copy, and was hooked. I was hooked pretty quickly. I wound up getting every issue they had, um, got a huge lot of the latter half of the series off of eBay, and at the moment, I've got a near-complete run. I think I need, like, three of the last four issues, like 84, 82, 81, or something. Um, I've been trolling eBay for them. I, I... don't feel like paying an enormous amount of money for them, even though the last couple issues are uh, can run a bit expensively. And uh, I do keep an eye out for them at any show I might attend. I haven't had a ton of luck, but I've got a couple of years before I really do absolutely need them for this podcast. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. But that's what brought me here. About a year ago, I started a podcast about Robin called Taking Flight. I also started a podcast that goes along with my blog, Pop Culture Affidavit. I wasn't necessarily looking to do another podcast, but having collected this series, having enjoyed it for the most part, um, I wanted to talk about it with somebody, even if that somebody is a microphone. Uh, Now, 
how did Marvel come to publish a monthly comic about the Vietnam War, especially at a time when war comics were kind of in their last throes? In the month that the Nom number one came out, Sergeant Rock over at DC, for instance, was on issue 413 out of 422. GI Combat would be canceled within two issues. And with the exception of GI Joe, Marvel really wasn't publishing a war comic. But as the story goes, Jim Shooter approached Larry Hama with the idea for a Vietnam-themed comic in 1986, had done so by pasting a title called The Nam over a G.I. Joe cover that showed a soldier in face camo peering through the jungle. I'm pretty sure it was issue 39. Uh, Issue 39 is a gorgeous Mike Zek, John Beatty cover of of Stalker, and I want to say that's gung-ho. And if you take a look at it, um, I'll post it in the show notes you'll be able to see why Shooter used this as his inspiration for the nom. But I don't want to give Jim Shooter all the credit. I'm sure he would take it. Uh, Larry Hama and original nom writer Doug Murray, as well as artist Michael Golden, had done a Vietnam-based story a few years prior to this. Uh, Murray and Golden had done a series called The Fifth of the First in Savage Tales magazine, which Hama was editing. So when Shooter approached Hama with the idea for the nom, Hama tapped Murray for a proposal, and eventually Golden came on. Uh, While Murray and Golden would not be on the book for its entire 84-issue run, it is quite remarkable that this book did run for as long as it had, especially when it ends in the early 1990s in the middle of um, gimmick-o-rama. So... Good to them, good to Marvel, for, for and good to the audience for picking this up for as long as they did. So I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, I'll be talking about issue number one of The Nom. In the decade of the 1930s, even the great city of Cleveland, Ohio, was not spared of the ravages of the Great Depression. In a time of fear and confusion, a character emerged that would entertain and inspire millions of children and adults alike. He began not as flesh and blood, but as a simple line drawing. His comic book adventures thrilled millions around the world. The magic of radio gave to his name a breathless signature and sound. Then with television came a whole new generation to idolize his exploits. In the 70s, the world believed a man could fly. In the 80s, he was reborn in the comics and the 90s saw his death, rebirth, and marriage. In the 21st century, he returned to the big screen and saw his origin changed and retold on several occasions. Through the decades, he has gone by many names. The Man of Tomorrow. The Last Son of Krypton. The Man of Steel. His strength is incredible. His name is legendary. His battle is never ending. Faster than a speedy bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. My name is Michael Bailey, and I host an internet radio show called Views from the Longbox. 
Superman is my favorite character of all time, and in 2013, he is turning 75. Because of this, a large portion of the episodes this year will be about the Man of Steel in a series I'm calling Superman, Superman at 75, the celebration, the celebration of a legend. legend. I'm going to mark Superman's birthday in fine style by examining all aspects of the character's history, from the comics to the movies to the television series and beyond, both alone and with the best and brightest of the podcasting world. It may not be every episode, but the bulk of views in 2013 will be all about the Man of Steel. He is the first and greatest superhero of them all, and he deserves no less. Superman at 75. The celebration of a legend. A series within a series, and the biggest birthday card a fan can give his favorite hero, only at Views from the Long Box. Views from the Long Box is a fortress of Bailey Tude production. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and for this series, over at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The Nam number one is dated December 1986 and was released on September 9th, 1986. It has a Marvel 25th anniversary logo in the upper left-hand corner with a generic-looking Vietnam-era soldier in the box. The cover, which is by Michael Golden, shows a helicopter landing in an open field, soldiers creeping through the field with one on a comlink, a tank heading away from a village, and a helicopter pulling out of an area while two jets lay waste to the jungle, all behind a map of Vietnam, which is divided into the north and south, their respective flags illustrated within those borders. The Nam is written in a typical military-style typeface on the top of the cover. Our story is titled Nam, First Patrol. Story by Doug Murray. Pencils and coloring by Michael Golden. Inks by Armando Gill. Letters by Phil Felix. The editor was Larry Hama. The editor-in-chief was Jim Shooter. Early in 1966, a young soldier leaves home for his first taste of independence and war. We are in an airport and a young GI is hugging his parents goodbye. They tell him to be careful and remember to write. Oh, and not to forget his drama mean. He's led to the plane by a stewardess, and she gives him a glass of water so he can take that Dramamine. Later, the stewardess tells our soldier, Private Marks, that he looks tired and should sleep because it'll be a while before they get to SeaTac, or Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. And that's exactly what he does. We cut to 0630 on the 8th of January 1966 in Fort Lewis, Washington, and the loud voice of a sergeant who is telling a group of new recruits to line up and get ready to check in. Private Marks gets in line, and he gets his shots. We then see him on kitchen patrol later that day before he finally collapses in his bed and sleeps soundly. That is, until he's woken up by the same sergeant who orders the men in the barracks to fall out with all their full basic-issue gear. Marks and the boys dress and eventually are loaded onto an Air Force transport at McCord Air Force Base. They board their flight. Marks again notes that he has a little trouble with flying. And eventually they land at Saigon Airport amid tracer fire and are told to exit the plane as soon as it stops moving. Marks moves with the others but does stop for a moment to gawk at the action surrounding him. A few minutes later, safely away from the beleaguered airstrip, the troops are checking in. A medic gives Marks a malaria pill and warns him that the disease is often worse than the bullets. Marks then gets on board a personnel carrier and arrives at the headquarters of the 23rd Mechanized Infantry. He reports to his first sergeant, who asks Marks what sort of duty he's looking for. 
Marx isn't sure what the sergeant, first sergeant means, to which he, the first sergeant replies by telling Rob, his assistant, to take Marx to Sergeant Poclo and smarten him up while he's at it. On the way, Rob tells Marx that Top, which is what they call the first sergeant, was looking for a bribe. Pay him a little cash, he'll get him a cushy assignment. That's how it works. Since Top thought Marx was playing games with him, Marx got a crap assignment. Rob obviously knows that Marx is completely green, and he introduces him as such to the guys in his company as well, and gives the guys a few candy bars as well. Rob leaves, and Marx introduces himself as Ed Marx, and says he's obviously too stupid to realize that he might have to bribe a first sergeant. Skinny guy named Mike Albergo introduces himself and directs Ed to an empty bunk, then gives him some grief for not knowing that Top wanted a bribe and for being completely green. He then jokingly says, Welcome to the Jewel of Southeast Asia. Marx is then introduced to Cruz, gets his gear, and that includes an M16 and meets Sarge, who tells him that they're going into the brush the next morning at 0430. The next morning, the company heads through brush and marsh on patrol. Marx is sweating, both from the heat and his nerves. Albergo points out a booby trap and tells him to keep close so he won't get hurt. Then he shows him how to refill a canteen from the river using iodine pills. The troops enter a village and the locals start to bug out. Sarge screams, COVER! And gunfire erupts. Marx is nearly hit but then gets cover and the boys manage to get 2 VC. Marx throws up at the sight of two dead bodies. Then he heads out with the rest of his platoon. They meet up with some tanks and APCs, one of which hits a booby trap. Platoon is then told to leave the tanks and spread out among the brush to get all the booby traps. They spring a trap door, blow up a couple of tunnels, and then call for in for a ride back home. Marx, of course, still has a problem with flying. Back at the base, Marx has a drink while he tries to process his first taste of combat. The guys tell him he'll get used to it and then tell him that a movie is playing. It's a Civil War flick, Major Dundee. The guys joke about how bad and inaccurate things are, while the movie shows the VC rock at the base. Some of the guys notice, but the other guys are nonplussed and says, well, it's not close enough to be a real danger to them, they should just watch the movie. Marx turns his attention to the movie, glances at another rocket's red glare, and says, oh, I see, they're different here. Just have to get used to that. You know, I hadn't had much exposure to this series before I picked this issue up from my LCS a couple of years ago. Uh, I'd heard of it. I'd seen a few panels and books or on websites here or there. I hadn't been on my radar, though. And while I've read this issue before, of course, because I read it when I first got it, this is the first time I've really gone in depth. It's my, quote-unquote, second exposure to Michael Golden's artwork. My first, or at least the first I really took notice of, was his work on the Batman special from 1984, The Player on the Other Side. I have a beat-to-crap copy of that that I fished out of a 50-cent bit a long time ago. It's, it's actually one of my favorite Batman stories of all time. But other than that, maybe a few other random Batman covers. At one point, I know he was attached to a Man-Bat project, which really I don't think went beyond a who's-who drawing. Um, I wasn't f- too familiar with Golden's artwork. Um, I had no idea who Doug Murray was. So I'm coming in as green as Mark's. And this does have the feel of exposition, which it should. It's your first issue. And in your first issue, you should not only be introducing us to new characters, but the new situation. I'm kind of reminded of Oliver Stone's Platoon at times. I'm sure that's not an accident. That movie came out right either right before or around the same time as this issue. Uh, 
was being written, or at least as it hit the stands. Marx looks like your typical all-American kid. And while the series does have a very diverse cast of characters throughout its run, I think starting with this particular image of this all-American white-bred kid works because it's a stereotype. And and playing on the stereotype going off to war is important because Murray is playing into what his audience might have as a preconceived notion as like who the boys are when you're talking about the troops. Um, and Marx is a likable character. The heuristic tendencies are cute. It's a little, it's a running joke. Um, I think it kind of resolves itself eventually before it gets irritating. Or as far as I know, I mean, it might get beaten into the ground at one point or another. But again, he's green. He's nervous. He's very much like, well, us, the reader. And it eases us, the readers, into the story, even as we're shocked a little bit into the rough landing as as they land roughly in Saigon. Uh, the action of his first day on patrol, which I think is done well because it seems like the war was long periods of quiet punctuated by flares of action. Um, I also got the feeling that Murray was going for the feel of that being sort of routine, especially since the guys around Marx didn't seem too upset by having to run for cover from a couple of VC guys firing at them in a village, or that they didn't seem too upset about having uncovered a trapdoor and just laying waste to it. At the same time, I definitely felt Marx's exhaustion and uneasiness and the feeling that he's just going to have to get used to this, as, as are we, Murray and Golden appear to be showing us the war for what it was, and that is a great approach to this series because they're not trying to set up some sort of like long storyline right off the bat uh, the same way that many superhero comics tend to do with first issues. They're also staying away from the politics of Vietnam as well. I have no idea if Marx has been drafted or if Marx has enlisted, if he went willingly, if he wants to be there, if he doesn't want to be there. We just know that this is the new normal for him. This is new his reality now, and we're getting used to it the same way he is. In other words, we can debate the politics later. Hawk, dove, liberal, conservative, let's put that aside. Let's look at the war for what it was, and and that is a great approach because it allows you to just kind of see it for what it is. The supporting cast seems like an interesting bunch of the characters, too. Albergo's a jokester. Murray's using him to get us acclimated, though. Uh, he gets us used to the setting through showing Marks the ropes as on-the-job training, so to speak. I think that works very, very well. It's not stilted. It seems natural. It seems organic without being intrusive. Sarge is your typical grizzled, grizzled sergeant, and he's definitely seen some action. I like how Top is crooked. He's he's making his money on the side in his little fiefdom here. And um, I think you'd expect all that from a situation like this. Uh, this is 1966, around the time when the U.S. military was, you know, in it for the long haul. And, uh, you know, we'll see more of all these guys later, especially Top. Trust me. This is a great first issue. I recommend picking it up. It's available in trade I believe most of the first like year or two of the NOM is available in trade. And uh, you might actually be able to find it in a back issue bin for pretty cheap, too, because uh, the early issues of the NOM had a healthy print run. Uh, they were pretty well, they sold pretty well in the newsstand, too. So you would be able to find a copy of at least the first year or two's worth of stories in, in a back issue bin. Um, and you probably can get them 
for of, of a little bit little bit of money not not really really expensive maybe even a 50 cents or a dollar um, it's the latter issues of this series that are, are hard to come by as I was saying earlier when I get back uh, I'm gonna take a look at the issues historical context and the letter columns and ads I guess you weren't so tough after all were you now it's time to send you to the next dimension. 291 original episodes. This can't be. It's still going up. 325 manga chapters. You act innocent, but you're deadly. Time to die! Dozens of characters, hundreds of enemies, and a whole lot of violence. That kind of violence is pointless! You see, Super Saiyans tend to be a bit violent. Oh, crap! Join hosts Donovan and Jesse. As they cover the arrival of the Saiyans, the journey to Namek, the battle with Frieza, the mystery of the androids, and the terror of Majin Buu. I lied when I said you could go, at least partially lied, for I will let you go to another dimension! The Next Dimension, a Dragon Ball Z podcast. Join the fight at dbznextdimension.libson.com. See ya. And we're back. Uh, the music for this episode, by the way, the, the song that introduced us at the very, very beginning of the episode was We Can Work It Out by the Beatles. This was the number one song in the Billboard Hot 100 on January 8th, 1966, which is when our story begins. Uh, every episode, you will hear a song that was popular during the time when the issue is set, if a particular month or year is given. Uh, or you'll hear a song from the era that is appropriate to the episode. So, January 66, it's about a year and a half after the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which was the catalyst for the escalation of U.S. involvement in Vietnam. On January 12, 1966, Lyndon Johnson emphasized the United States' commitment to the war effort, saying that the United States would be there until the communist aggression against South Vietnam had ended, and by January 18th, 8,000 more troops had landed in South Vietnam, bringing the U.S. total to 119,000. It doesn't appear that there was any major combat, any major battles during this month, but as I work out the kinks in the podcast, we'll get further along in the Vietnam War timeline. I'm sure I'll be able to give you guys a little more details that go beyond a cursory look at Wikipedia. Um, but, you know, it was, it was a relatively quiet month in the history of the war. Things were, as you can see by this issue, relatively routine. We are a couple of years away from, say, the Tet Offensive. And from the real heavy days of the anti-war movement at home as well. Now, the NAM had a letter column uh, entitled Incoming, which also featured NAM, uh, had a feature called NAM Notes. Uh, this is a glossary of military terms and jargon that was used in the issue that readers may be unfamiliar with. Uh, there are obviously no letters in this month's in com- incoming, but there is a note from the editors about the book, its purpose, and what to expect. I don't know if this is from Larry Hama or if this is from Doug Murray. I think Doug Murray, for a while, did introduce the letters or answer the letters. The NAM is the real thing, or at least as close to the real thing as we can get in a newsstand comic bearing the comics code seal. Every action, every firefight is based on fact. That doesn't mean that the 23rd Infantry was in every action we show. It does mean that in February of 1966, a contingent of U.S. infantry met with a mechanized group of Aussie infantry and together they discovered a Viet Cong tunnel system just as shown in issue number one. 
Furthermore, the events in the NAM happen in real time. When 30 days pass for the reader, 30 days also pass for the characters in the story. When a full year, 12 issues have gone by of the NAM, characters introduced in issue 1 will all have rotated back to the states just like in the real world. Yes, we had to make some compromises. The real language used by soldiers in the field can be quite raw. The most common appellation for a new troop was not greeny. The word itself was printable, but the explanation gets a bit touchy. We all know that General McAuliffe didn't say nuts to the German commander at Bastogne. Now, I can't promise that we will show everything, every action that everyone's father or brother ever took part in during the Vietnam War. But I will promise that we will show in basic terms what the war was really like for those who fought it. And then some of the nom notes. Um, As with any other profession, soldiers have their own private language, a jargon that is used on the job with other soldiers. In the nom, that jargon was a mixture of various oriental languages with a smattering of French and English. To give a true feel of the real Vietnam, we will use this jargon whenever we can to allow you, the reader, to follow along and to avoid interruptions of the storyline through footnoting. We will include at every issue of the nom a brief glossary of all the new terms used in the book. We will try to be as complete and comprehensive as possible. This issue we have, and there are quite a few. I'll, I'll share a, a few of the the ones we've got. AIT, Advanced Individual Training, APC, Armored Personnel Carrier, Aussie, Australian, 11 Bush, Army Skill Code for Light Weapons Infantry, in short, the grunts, the frontline foot soldiers. First Sergeant, think of the Army as a big corporation. The officers are planners like the makers of plans and strategies. The NCOs or non-commissioned officers are the, fi- are the line managers, the men who take care of the employees or the troops making sure they are properly trained, paid, equipped, etc. The first sergeant, then, is the senior NCO, the man with the most experience and responsibility for the troops. He does most of the administrative work of the company and is commonly referred to as top. We have hat up, which means put on your hat and leave. Also sky up or book out. LPC, leadership potential candidate, a short army school following basic training where individuals who are shown leadership qualifications are given some extra training to help their development. LZ, short for landing zone. Moskoshi, a Japanese phrase adopted for use in the NAM, used to mean right now, right away. M16, or the 14, that is the basic weapon of the infantry. The M14 rifle was chambered for the NATO 7.62mm round and was used until the mid-50s. It was then replaced by the lighter, more versatile M16, which which fired a smaller 5.56mm round and enabled the grunt to hunt more ammo. R&R, Rest and Recreation. Repo Depot, short short for Replacement Depot, a staging area where new troops and other replacements were housed while their records were checked and updated and needed shots and equipments that were issued the last stop before moving to a frontline unit. RVN is the Republic of Vietnam, or specifically South Vietnam. Victor Charlie, or sometimes just Charlie, the Viet Cong, in short, at that point, the enemy. The world, in quotes, the good old U.S. of A, home, the real world to those in the NAM. And then the phrase which, which Obergo uses in, in the issue, you can tell it's Mattel. When troops saw the M16 for the first time, which was made primarily of plastic, they jokingly used the phrase Mattel had used as their advertising slogan for toys. And speaking of ads, let's take a look at them. Uh, This is always fun. Um, I have the original single issues of this, so I get to do this. I don't get to do this all the time with Taking Flight. Um, 
because I'm usually working out of trades. Uh, the inside cover, you have an M&M's ad. That was, uh, we have an ad later in the book for Laser Tag, which came out in 1986. And well, I know it's been a relatively popular arcade game over the last 20 or 25 years, but I don't think all the crazy laser tag equipment and toys that were around the mid-80s lasted too long, at least until kids discovered paintball, that is. Then again, maybe it was advertised wrong. This ad has this futuristic sci-fi sort of setting where um, you've got like a kid, a guy in a blue costume and a guy in a gray costume and the guy in the blue costume saying, there's the laser tag siren, you can't deny it this time, it's your six hit and you're out, the star sensor never lies. And it's supposed to be like, you know, what have you. Um, had they advertised it as an augmentation of, say, Manhunt, which, if you remember as a kid playing that game, which basically hide-and-seek, but, like, my friends and I, my friends and I would play Manhunt in the woods behind his house, my one friend's house, and it was, like, a little more hardcore than your basic hide-and-seek because, like, you know, we try to capture each other because we also used to play Army, too. So, had we had laser tag stuff and Manhunt, that would have been freaking cool. That would have been a good way to advertise laser tag. You know, you can play, you can play in the woods. You shoot your friends. Because that's healthy. Uh, there's an ad for Bonkers, which was a candy that had two flavors or something. Some texture wrapped in another texture. I don't remember. They, I don't think they tasted very good. I don't think they lasted very long. America's finest discount comic subscription service, the Westfield Company out of Whittleton, of Whittleton, Wisconsin? Uh, Middleton, Wisconsin. They have an ad. And at the Staples, there's an ad for something that we as kids waited for all summer. The Saturday morning cartoons. Here we have the 86-87 NBC lineup of Kissy Fur, Gummy Bears, Smurfs, Punky Brewster, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Foofer, Kid Video, and of course, One to Grow On. This was... Well, I'm sure I watched a couple of these, but it's post-Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. Um, I was about nine... So, I definitely watched Saturday Morning Cartoons. I might have been getting more picky. I'd have to see what was on the other network's lineups. I know I watched Alvin and the Chipmunks. I also may have watched Punky Brewster. And I don't want to necessarily admit that. I vividly remember watching Gummy Bears, but I also might have watched Gummy Bears during the Dis- when it was on the Disney afternoon a few later years later. And the Smurfs... I want to say that like the Smurfs ran for like an hour and a half on Saturday mornings. For some reason, I remember that show being like interminable. Uh, for all I know, it only ran for a half an hour, but I just remember for some reason the Smurfs was just like always on, and that's why I didn't watch a lot of NBC. I think I saw like two episodes of Kid Video. My friend John really liked it. I just never really got into it. There's an ad for Adidas clothes. It's inspired by NASA and the Young Astronauts program. I never owned any of this. I was big into the space program, the space shuttle. I thought it was really cool. Um, I live about two hours south of Dulles, airport and out of Washington, D.C. I live in right near Charlottesville, Virginia. And if you know anything about the Dallas, D.C. area, there is an annex to the Air and Space Museum, which houses one of the space shuttles, which I want to say is Discovery. Enterprise was there for a very long time. I don't want to say Discovery is there now. I have yet to go there, but I'm determined to go there and see the space shuttle because I, when I was nine years old, the kid, it was the coolest thing ever. Of course, also when I was nine years old, um, was the Challenger disaster, but which I, did, I think I did a blog entry about a couple of years ago. But uh, it was, but the space program was was big when I was in my life when I was a kid. I never owned any of this crap, and um, from what I can tell, I don't think astronauts wore sweatpants with pockets on them. 
We do have a Hot Potch ad that features American comics. Some of the things featured that are Hot Dark Knight. First and second co- first and second issue, second printing of each goes for five dollars. They got Kitty Pride and Wolverine, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And this was like, you know, the actual Eastman and Laird comics. These were really starting to hit bigger and bigger and bigger, which is why you got the cartoon within a couple of years of this. Um the first was on a fourth printing this point they were selling it for 354 and five for the first printing for five dollars um let's see what the most expensive comics going at that point were gi joe number one fifteen dollars number two six and the second printing of eight uh ten dollars number nine 13 and 15 $10 and then there were a few that uh, were going for $2.150 and um, so not as overpriced as it would get in the 90s still still reasonable still comics that at the time yeah were um, were pretty big you know these kind of make sense ooh Man of Steel 1 through 4 hot that one's for Mike Bailey. And uh, let's see, what else we got? Oh, on the back cover. Well, bullpen, bullpen Bulletins. Bullpen Bulletins first has a spotlight on Power Pack and Shooters still trying to push the new universe, which at that time was only in its first few months. On the back cover, we have Brock's Gumdinger Adventures featuring Gumby and Pokey. And they're on the search for Mystical Gumdinger Land. And I want to read this because this is ridiculous. Uh, Gumby and Pokey's search begins for the mystical Gumdinger land, and they're in a hot air balloon with the Brock's Gumdinger logo on the side, and and Pokey saying, I just can't stop thinking about delicious Brock's Gumdinger pops. Me too, says Gumby. All those mouth-watering flavors. Yeah, cherry, grape, watermelon, apple, orange, strawberry, ice cream, and vanilla ice cream. Oh. And a delicious bubblegum center. Gumdinger pops are a real bargain because they have a lot more gum than most other gum pops. Can't we fly this thing any faster? We could if you weren't so pokey. Look, Gumdingerland. Ooh. To be continued. Why is it to be continued? They found the Gumdingerland. And these things sound disgusting. Vanilla ice cream with a bubblegum center? Below this, we have more gum, more fun with Gumdinger, Pops, and Gumby and Pokey fun kits, which have stickers and memo pads and bookmarks and a Gumby pen. I realize that my Gumby voice sounds like Mr. Bill, but there you go. That damn claymation cartoon ran like on weekday mornings for like years we just kept watching it it was at least it wasn't Davey Goliath I don't know Davey anyway that's about it (laughs) Um, that's about it for the nom number one and the first issue of uh, sorry the first episode of In Country I'll be back in two weeks uh, with a look at issue two. Until then, I'm Tom Paneries, and thank you for listening. I have always-
You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and as this podcast is intended for ep- entertainment purposes, and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and may likely be read on the air as I occasionally do email-centric episodes or segments. Thank you again for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom. There's a chance that we might fall apart